1968, my dad was a young 25-year-old Methodist pastor in South Wales. One member of his church was a lovely Christian lady called Dora Lewis. Uh, her husband wasn't a Christian, but he was sympathetic to the faith. He was supportive of her, and he appreciated a visit from my dad when he was in hospital with a non-serious condition. And during that visit, my dad recalls the passion with which Mr. Lewis talked about retirement. He was a civil servant. He had a good index-linked final salary pension scheme, remember those, which he had been building up his whole working life. Decades. And he was now looking forward massively to retiring on this pension and finally enjoying his rest. He hardly talked about anything else. He couldn't wait. And finally, Mr. Lewis retired. And just two weeks later, a frantic phone call came from Dora. Malcolm is lying on the bed. He may have died. My dad got there as fast as he could. He actually beat the ambulance. He went to the bedroom and he found Malcolm lying on his bed covered in blood. A massive aortic embolism had burst in his chest. He had died almost instantly. My dad knelt and prayed with the widow. All those years looking forward to that rest of retirement. But he never got to enjoy it because of a heart problem. We're continuing our series today in this letter to the Hebrews. And Amanda just read a long section, beautifully. And frankly, it was quite confusing, wasn't it? <laughs> Everybody, no one's going to admit it, but it was. It can all be boiled down to two very simple things which the writer wants to impress upon his listeners and on us. He wants to hit home seriously. And the story about Malcolm Lewis makes the point, all those years looking forward to rest, but he never got to enjoy it because of a heart problem. Here's the point. Jesus came to give us rest, but hard hearts won't enjoy it. Jesus came to give us rest, but hard hearts won't enjoy it. I've got two points today. The first one is, Jesus came to give us rest. And the second one, you guessed it, hard hearts won't enjoy it. Jesus came to give us rest. Now, the people who this letter was written to were second or third generation Christians. They weren't the ones who, you know, had seen Jesus and, and, and heard him preach. They were the ones after that. And they'd made a strong start in the Christian faith. But now they were weary, dog-tired. At different points during the letter, we pick up pressures. We, we learn about pressures that they were facing. And reading a letter in the New Testament is a bit like listening to one end of a phone call. You know, you can hear this end. And because of what you can hear, you can have a pretty good guess of what is going on at the other end of the phone call. Chapter 4, verse 15 says... We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The pressure of weakness. I just don't feel strong enough. Being prone to wander, you know it, needing help. Chapter 10 suggests that 
They were struggling with a sense of a guilty conscience and worrying, am I really forgiven? Maybe that's you. The writer says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Some of them were dropping out of Christian community. Not going to church had become a habit. And so they were vulnerable. They lost the strength that only coming to church brings. Spoke to a young man last year who told me, my faith's doing fine, thanks. Hasn't been to church since. It leaves him vulnerable. They'd, some of these people had actually faced insults and persecution for their faith. Some of them went to prison or they had their property confiscated. But that was in the past. And now he tells them, you've got to persevere. You've got to keep going. They were well taught. They knew their Bibles. But they needed to keep going. They were flagging. So chapter 13, right at the end, the emphasis, listen to this. Keep on loving. Don't forget. Continue to remember. Remember your leaders. Don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. Bear the disgrace that Jesus bore. See, they were weary. So he writes, consider Jesus who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And he says, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Anyone here ever feel weary? Of course you do. Tim Chester, in a a wonderful book written in 2006 about busyness, provides some questions that are useful for us to ask today. Do you regularly work 30 minutes a day longer than your contracted hours? Do you check work emails and phone messages at home? Has anyone ever said to you, I didn't want to trouble you because I know how busy you are? Do your family or friends complain about not getting time with you? If tomorrow night was unexpectedly freed up, would you use it to work or do a household chore? Do you often feel tired during the day? Do you find your neck and shoulders aching? Do you often exceed the speed limit while driving? I know some people who've done the speed awareness course so many times, they should be teaching the course. Do you often make use of flexible working arrangements offered by your employers? Do you pray with your children regularly? Do you have enough time to pray? Do you have a hobby in which you are actively involved? Do you eat together as a household at least once a day? Is there any chance that you have a problem with busyness? Now, we live in a suburb of London, one of the truly great global cities, in a culture that prizes being busy. You can actually see it in the way we talk about church life, funny enough. We say things like this, we're grateful for all you are doing. It's interesting. Note how at King's Church, we tend to instinctively commend people who graft, who get their sleeves rolled up, who serve. We need to ask as a church, What's the shadow side of that? 
Chester continues, more than eight out of 10 British workers feel their health has been harmed by work demands. One in five men has visited the doctor with work-related stress. 60% of us feel our workload is sometimes out of control. One in five feels this way most of the time. For many, a nervous breakdown is the only way out. One church leader told Tim, I sometimes long to be hospitalized. <laughs> what a thought. I just wish I could be hospitalized. <laughs> Nothing too painful, but I'd have no responsibilities and lots of attention. So weary. Now, there's a technological reason. It's very easy to get into a situation where you never switch off and other people demand it of you as well. When you see them, they say, did you get my text? My text was asking you if you'd seen my email, you know? <laughs> well, if I had, I would have replied. There's also a cultural reason. In a traditional society, you got your identity from where you fitted in with a kind of pre-assigned role. You were a son or a daughter, a husband or a wife, a mum, a dad, a chief, a worker. You had a, you had a role that was given to you. But in a modern society, an individualistic society like ours, you have to earn and create your own value by what you do. It's one of the first questions most people ask. Hi, what's your name? What do you do? So our relationship with work is completely changed. Work is now the way you get your value. And as a result, we are the most weary society in history. Listen, the amazing news is that Jesus Christ came to give us rest. There's a tired woman. <laughs> Look at these quotes throughout chapter 4. Therefore, verse 1, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you to be found to have fallen short of it. Verse 3, now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. Verse 6, therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed and didn't go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day. The promise is still there. Verse 9, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. So there's a promise of rest. Jesus, the good news is, that one of the aspects of the good news is that Jesus has come to give you rest. And we sometimes downsize the good news, the gospel, to you can get your sins forgiven and you go to heaven. But that's true, it's, very, it's totally true, but it's, it's reductive. Part of the gospel, the good news, is that God will give you rest. And actually part of going to heaven is that God's new creation, the world that's coming, we will all be actively engaged in it, but we will be at rest. How so? One of the reasons why this reading is confusing is that the author uses the rest in, in more than one way. There's a couple of different ways he's using the word rest. So if we can uh, slightly untangle them, it might help us. First of all, there's the rest of the promised land, the rest that was promised in the Old Testament. Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 16. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? 
was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. This is clearly talking here about the promised land of Canaan. A beautiful land flowing with milk and honey. And that was where God had promised he was going to take the Israelites to. And they were on a journey there. It was a place of rest. Now why is that? It wasn't that it was, Canaan was like a, a massive center parks. No. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a huge holiday resort with free food and drinks. They were going to work in Canaan, but they would now be working as free people, not as slaves. That makes all the difference. They would be able to build things and live in them themselves. They would be able to eat the produce that they planted and enjoy the fruits of their labors. Remember that in Egypt they were slaves. They were worked relentlessly. And now they were free. So rest is a declaration of freedom. In the promised land, we're all going to take a day off every week. Now, when the Ten Commandments were republished just before they went to the promised land, the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy's second law, the second time they're republishing, Moses gave a really interesting variation on one commandment, the commandment uh, to remember the Sabbath. Sabbath is Saturday, day of rest. Back in Exodus chapter 20, the first time the commandments were given, the reason for the Sabbath day was that God had rested on the Sabbath, the seventh day. So it was a creation reason. But Deuteronomy gives a different reason. Here's what it says in chapter 5. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you should labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither, bless you, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals. I mean, everyone's getting a rest here. Nor any foreigners residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Because you were slaves. And you couldn't rest. But now you can. Because God has given you rest. God is saying here, when you rest, it is a declaration of freedom. It's a way of saying, I don't need to work all the time. And therefore, anyone who overworks is a slave. And we forget Sabbath rhythms at our peril. And oh, how we need to hear this. No one gets to retirement and looks back and says, oh, I, just, I just wish I'd spent more time in the office. <laughs> you see, when you put your work down, it is actually a revolutionary act. When you switch your phone off, when you don't reply, when you don't read those messages, when you turn off and rest, it's a revolutionary act. It's saying, I can trust God not to work today. But there's a second way that rest gets used in this passage, 
And this actually is, is really fascinating. It goes way beyond the physical rest of enjoying the promised land. Notice how uh, the writer argues in chapter 4. So have a look at there, chapter 4, verse um, 8. 4, he says, If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Now, what's this? Joshua was the leader who actually did take the people into the promised land. Moses died outside of it, but Joshua took them in. Joshua's name actually means Jesus. He's the leader, it means God saves. He's the leader who took them in. They actually took the land, most of it. They set up their home there. They got the land. But, verse 8 says that if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. So he's not just talking about the promised land here. He's talking about another rest. What is it? Verse 9 tells us. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. This is talking about a rest that God himself enjoys. It's his rest. And it's saying that we could rest like God does. Now, Back at the beginning of the Bible, the creation account tells us that God made the heavens and the earth and that on the seventh day, he rested. And that shows that there's more going on with this word than we think because God can't get tired the way that we get tired, can he? God doesn't need to take a break from his work because he's a bit out of breath and needs a coffee. Most of us can't work for much more than an hour without needing a break. We've had a few days away this week at my sister-in-law's house, and I've been in the presence of a, a hard-working student who had took a pile of maths books and English books and other books on holiday so that he could study every day. And what struck me was the way that this student regularly said to his phone, Siri, set an alarm for 10 minutes, which was when the next break was going to be. I'm like, 10 minutes? I mean, come on. <laughs> you need a break every 10 minutes. It's working very hard in, during those 10 minutes, of course. We, by the end of the working day, we're knackered. Most people really need the weekend. But God doesn't get tired that way. So how could God get rest from his work? The answer is that God isn't resting like that. His rest means he is totally satisfied with what he has done. Genesis 2 says that by the seventh day, God had finished all his work of creating. So on the seventh day, he rested from his work. God didn't go and have a sleep. He was deeply satisfied with what he had done. There was a sense of joy and completion. He, so he truly laid it down. Laid it down. You see, just as sleep won't restore you unless you actually go into deep sleep, so rest won't refresh you if you don't get to the place of deep rest, of satisfaction, of laying it down. No amount of holidays can help you if you don't get to that. Most people believe that all you have to do is to rest is to stop working, but we need to do more than that. The Sabbath says otherwise. It says you have to get to the point where you are still and you stop all your work and worry and you lay it aside. 
and you stop all the self-justifying that drives you to do it. The Sabbath says you need to be in a place where you say, I am satisfied that the Lord is in control of my life and he will provide all my needs even if I don't work today. We have to deal with the deep restlessness in our hearts that says, you have to prove yourself. If you don't deal with it, no one else is going to do it as well as you. Or, if you don't respond to this, they will think less of you. We have to cure that. We're slaves to expectations. We're slaves to what other people think of us. We're slaves to what we think of us. We're slaves to the need to prove ourselves to other people and God. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, brings you to that kind of rest. And nothing else can. Look at chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they didn't share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest. Believing the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, brings you into a rest where you no longer have to prove yourself all the time and justify your existence all the time and work really, really, really hard all the time so everyone can see how busy and tired you are all the time. You don't need to do it. You can lay it down. He's done it all for you. He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is light. My yoke is easy. In the fourth century, an African bishop called Augustine wrote an epic book called The City of God. It begins with a quote many of you have heard many times. O Lord, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. The book ends with rest again. He says, when we are restored by God and perfected with greater grace in, in the future, we shall have eternal leisure to see that he is God. For we shall be full of him and when he shall be all in all. There we shall rest and see, see and love, love and praise. This is what shall be in the end without end. For what other end do we propose to ourselves than to attain the kingdom of which there is no end? The gospel of Jesus Christ brings you to that rest. Do you want that? Jesus came to give us rest. Second point, more quickly, but hard hearts won't enjoy it. Right alongside that beautiful promise of rest, there is a deeply sobering, somber warning that comes through this chapter again and again and again. And he's making the point, isn't he? It, we, it's this, that we could fail to enter that rest. We could, we could lose that because of a heart problem. Like poor Mr. Lewis, who waited all of his life to enjoy that pension in retirement, we could fail to enter that rest because of a heart problem. You may have noticed that the writer keeps hammering a key point through the passage. 
he says, don't harden your hearts. Chapter 3, verse 8. Don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Twelve, verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Verse 15, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion, and so on and so forth. I think we've got the point. Don't harden your heart. And actually, I think I've said previously in this series that this letter is like a letter that's a sermon. And it is a bit like a sermon because he quotes a passage from the Old Testament and then he kind of brings it back and quotes it again and says it again. You know, preachers can be repetitive. That's okay. Now and then. Preachers can be repetitive. That's okay. Now and then. And the psalm he's quoting is Psalm 95, and it's about the biblical poster child of an ungrateful person. The, 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 mo- the worst example of an ungrateful, disobedient person is the wilderness generation, the ones who came out of Egypt and were rescued. Remember our time in Exodus earlier this year, how the Hebrews began to complain after three days in the desert. What? You just got rescued from slavery. They, they had a crisis with water. They responded by grumbling against Moses. They turned against God's leader, the very man who'd led them out of Egypt, within three days. That's how long it takes to turn, turn people. And that intensified in chapter, Exodus chapter 16 with the food crisis. Oh, my days. Now we're hungry. Hangry. Entire community turned against Moses and Aaron. And all they could think about was food. Chapter 16, verse 3. If only we died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat. Oh. When we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this desert to kill us with hunger. Forgetting about the slave labor and infanticide, they affectionately recall that the Egyptians had great barbecue. The way they talked about food. Food was more vivid than anything else. It's more real to them than God and his promises in spite of the recent deliverance. But that is the tendency of the human heart, friends. So it's your heart and mine too. To focus on the immediate. To focus on how we are feeling right now. To focus on our present experience and situation. We have incredibly short memories By nature, we are fickle and ungrateful. And the biblical writers use a very powerful phrase all through the Bible. They hardened their hearts. There's a condition where the heart actually does get hard. The arteries get hard. It's called arteriosclerosis. Sclerosis is actually from the word, the Greek word, harden here. So actually, there's a link. The hardening of the sclerosis of the arteries is the arteries get thicker, harder, and lose their elasticity in the walls. And gradually, it restricts the blood flow through the organs and the tissues. And that can lead to another condition called atherosclerosis, the buildup of fatty plaques, cholesterol, and other substances in and on the artery walls. It can be brought on by smoking, a bad diet, and many genetic factors. And it is the primary cause of heart attacks and stroke. It is hardening. The heart is hardening. And that's just a physical heart. But the Bible's use of the heart is much more subtle, isn't it? I mentioned this last week. I won't go into depth again. But in the Bible, the heart is the control center of the person. The heart thinks, so it's got an intellectual element. The heart 
feels, it's got an emotional element, the heart decides. It has the will, the, the, uh, the faculty of choice. So how could we harden our hearts? Chapter 3, verse 13 gives the answer. Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by what? Sin's deceitfulness. See, sin actually lies to you and can deceive you. Here's Tom Wright, the Bishop of Durham. There is such a thing as the deceitfulness of sin, and it's very powerful. You start by allowing yourself the apparent luxury of doing something small which you know you shouldn't. But you think it doesn't really matter. And when it becomes a habit, you stop thinking it's wrong at all. If the question is raised, you're ready with rationalizations. Everyone does it. This is the way the world is now. You mustn't be legalistic. No good being a killjoy. This creates a platform for the next move. Here's something else, which a little while ago you actually would have shunned as certainly wrong, but it's quite like the thing that you've got used to. So maybe, maybe it's all right. And before too long, you're rationalizing that as well. And once the mind has been deceived, the habit will continue unchecked. It's like falling asleep while driving a car. Nobody gets into a car with the aim of falling asleep at the wheel, I think. But the physical effects of tiredness and maybe the, the rhythm of the car and the warmth inside, it can kind of give you a deceitful whisper, you'll be all right, just keep going, nothing bad will happen, you can keep going. And when, when those whispers happen, you need clear thinking. You need to recognize the state you're in and take rapid and decisive action. You need to do the mental, spiritual equivalent of stopping the car, getting out and having a brisk walk, have a cup of coffee, maybe take some rest. Now, friends, what this text is saying is that hardening your heart is a real risk for all of us. None of us is beyond this. Whether you're a brand new Christian or you've been a Christian for 80 years, this hardening is mental. There's a, there's a cognition that goes on, a thinking process. It's emotional as well. We do, we're cooling off towards God. We're, we're toughening up towards God when we do this. It's a spiritual thing. Where heart's supposed to be tender, but it becomes harder, stony. When you choose to disobey, inside you toughen against God. Why do we do it? Lots of reasons, but at the bottom of them, is unbelief. We struggle to believe that obeying God is the best way to live. Why did those Israelites harden their heart after all the wonderful rescue they'd experienced? Because the life of following God in the wilderness was just too hard. It wasn't what they wanted. It involved suffering, uh, hardship, self-denial, delayed gratification, waiting for the future land. And living by faith for us, friends, means relying on God, depending on God, right now, especially in difficult situations. Resisting temptation, especially when temptation looks most attractive. Being separate from the culture around at the very point where you want to be in the culture around. Pursuing holiness when holiness looks weird. At some point, 
deep down, those Israelites just said, stuff this. So let me ask, as we come to the table, where are you tempted to harden your heart today? Satan will always come over where the hedge is lowest. The thing that's your weak spot, do you know what it is? Your characteristic sins, the things that come back again and again. Just look that thing in the face right now and ask yourself, am I prepared to lose my eternal rest with Jesus because of this? Is that a trade worth making? One of the greatest theologians who ever lived was an American man, Jonathan Edwards, lived in the 18th century. He spoke about the heart, the hardness of the heart. He says how common it is among people that their affections are much more exercised and engaged in other things than religion, in things which concern our worldly interest, our outward delights, our honor and reputation, our natural relationships, We have our desires eager and our appetites strong. Our love is warm and affectionate. Our zeal is ardent. In these things, our hearts are tender and sensible, easily moved, deeply impressed, much concerned, very affected, sensitive, greatly engaged, much depressed with grief at worldly losses, highly raised with joy at worldly success and prosperity. But how unmoved are most people about the great things of another world. How dull are their affections. How heavy and hard their hearts in these matters. Here their love is cold. Their desires are slow. Their zeal is low and their gratitude small. How they can sit and hear of the infinite height and depth and length and breadth of the love of God in Jesus Christ, of his giving his infinitely dear son to be offered up as a sacrifice for the sins of us and of the unparalleled love of the innocent, holy, tender lamb of God manifested in his dying agonies, his bloody sweat, his loud and bitter cries, his bleeding heart, and all this for his enemies to rescue us from eternal punishment and to bring us to an unspeakable and glorious joy and glory and yet to be cold about that and heavy and forgetful. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Jesus came to give us rest. Let's strive to enter it. And let's come to the table happily with tender and contrite hearts. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we just thank you that you speak to us at the point where we need to hear it. And we ask today that you would give us ears that hear and a heart that is tender and soft and sorrowful and trembling. And that we put aside those things which would deceive us and cling to you once more. Amen.